This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. Your brain needs support. And new Ollie Brainy Chews are a delightful way to take care of your cognitive health. Made with scientifically backed ingredients like Thai ginger, L-theanine, and caffeine. Brainy Chews support healthy brain function and help you find your focus, stay chill, or get energized. Be kind to your mind and get these nootropic chews at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y dot These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. We've all heard the old adage, social media is not real life. Some people consider that a good thing. Thank God everyone isn't actually happy and successful all the time, while some consider it a rallying call to make Instagram casual again. Whatever side of the debate you're on, the buck sort of stops when it comes to marketing yourself online as a creator. The statement turns neutral. Social media is not real life. You are not actually a perfectly curated presence fine-tuned to get you work and space to promote your art. So, once we all accept that and keep it in mind when moving about the internet, we can all proceed normally and with a cool head, right? Who am I kidding? We're talking about Twitter in this one. Navigating social media as a professional is full of unspoken rules, minefields of red and green flags, and lots of people who are just looking for someone to get mad at. It's both remarkably similar to your middle school Tumblr account and horrifically different. So strap on your bomb squad gear, secure your faith in humanity, and keep listening. This is Mini Marconi's, how to be a fiction podcaster while still being a kid. The number one thing I try to keep in mind when doing anything on my professional social media, because yes, I do have a private Twitter and Tumblr where I talk about my fandom stuff and mess around with my friends, is to remember that I am advertising my show's vibe to potential listeners and my own presence to potential employers and collaborators. But that's a little abstract, so I'll break it down. Here are some quick profile do's and don'ts for getting both your page and your show's page up to snuff. Do. Keep your header and icon professional. And don't take a shot every time I say that word. For a show account, your icon should be your cover art and your header either an altered version of it or something simple and unobtrusive that relates to your show. For example, if you're a southern gothic horror podcast, maybe some spooky swamplands or unkempt crossroads. This makes it easier for fans to recognize that this account is your show's and advertise to people who might come across one of your tweets just what it's all about. For your creator account, I strongly recommend a nice headshot or even a clean-looking selfie, or if you're not interested in showing your face, something rated G and related to your work. For example, for a while, my icon was a picture of Snoopy cutting some tape together with a cassette player because I work in audio and he's a great little dude. Don't. Fill your show's bio with buzzwords. The most important thing in your show's press kit is a logline, a brief, one-sentence pitch of what the hook of your show is. What makes it stand out from the crowd? What's the mystery or setting or plot beat that grabs people's attention? And no, a queer sci-fi horror podcast made by a bunch of gay dweebs does not count. 
that tells me nothing unique or relevant about your show and hints that you're relying on marketing my identity to me to sell it. However, the further away you are from the sun, the more things can hide in the dark, is a much better logline for that show. It conveys the genres, horror and sci-fi, a bit about what brand of horror we're dealing with, and leaves you with a sense of curiosity and dread. What things are hiding in all that dark? How many are there? Do you really want to find out? Do. Have a pinned tweet, or even a thread, with quick and easy links to stuff like your website, places folks can support the show, like a merch store or Patreon, and ways to leave a rating and review. The number one rule of advertising is that the easier it is for humans to do something, the more likely they are to do it. Make it easy on your audience to help you out. Don't. Put anything on your show account from this brief list of things I have actually seen. Graphic updates on a tattoo infection. Wordle games. Literally anything about the Omegaverse. Long-winded explanations detailing all the mental health issues keeping your show on hiatus instead of a brief tweet that says, hey, things are rough right now, but we're hoping to have new content out soon. And complaining about one-star reviews that aren't bigoted or rude, they literally just did not like the show and said why. I hope I don't have to explain why none of your listeners are following you for that. It's also important to remember when it comes to your creator account that anxiety and imposter syndrome isn't something you should be ashamed of. Everybody gets them to varying degrees, but frequently and publicly airing your self-doubt and self-flagellation isn't relatable, it isn't pretty, and it just makes people uncomfortable. There's a difference between humanizing yourself and letting people know they're not alone in their anxiety and tweeting stuff that really belongs in a journal or spoken about with a close friend. This is, at the end of the day, a business environment where people come to hawk their wares, make connections, and create cool stuff. It's not group therapy. If anybody knows how to keep it real and keep their cool online, it's Elena Fernandez-Collins. Ellie is just about everywhere in the online podcasting space, and someone I've always looked up to when figuring out how to stay sane when most of my job deals with social media. They shared their advice on not just that, but being nervous about making big moves, then doing them anyway. I am Elena Fernandez-Collins. Um, you might know me from the podcast, Twitter, community, internet as Ellie. I am now a communications and content uh, manager at Simplecast. But before that, and also currently, I was a podcast critic and journalist that focused on fiction podcasting. And then you also um, are currently carrying the banner of one of our community's oh, hey. greatest touchstones. <laughs> That's a good point. I do that also. I'm the host of Radio Drama Revival. I do too many things is the answer to this, is that I do so many things that I can't remember. So part of your job and part of what you do in audio drama involves talking to a lot of people. And one of the things that's usually kind of nerve wracking about networking is reaching out and talking with people who you see as I'm capitalizing the first letter of every word in this out of your league. So we've all been there. How do you sort of hype yourself up to talk to someone as you see as sort of up on a pedestal a little bit? So the first thing that I do is I take them down to the front of the pedestal. I know that it's very much uh, like an automatic reaction for your heroes or the people that you admire who have done amazing work, but they're people and people aren't perfect. 
And they are also usually in this, in this scenario, the people that you're going to be talking to are going to be other creators or they're going to be people working, you know, with companies or corporations who are trying to pitch, right? Or they're going to be people that you're trying to hire to do stuff, right? Voice actors or sound designers. And they don't have the energy to be on that pedestal. <laughs> they're already doing plenty of things. <laughs> they don't they don't need the stress that comes from that, right? And this is part of what it means to be entering a creative space is acknowledging that we all have parasocial relationships and it's important to make sure that the ones that we are enabling are positive ones and not the toxic ones. It's important to remember that they don't owe you anything. It takes work to be able to do that. Like that's not something that you're just going to like be able to decide to do. You're talking to a human person. Chill out. Chill out. It's going to be fine. The worst thing that they can do is say no. Well, okay, the very worst thing that someone can do is say something, like, horrifically offensive um, about you or your work, and that's not cool, and you don't want to interact with that person anymore if that's their reaction. Um, so the worst thing that someone can reasonably do uh, is say no. And unfortunately, this is media. You're going to hear no a lot. You're going to hear no a lot, and that's just true for all forms of artistic media that rely on getting some kind of approval from somewhere else. And that's okay, because you will find other people, you will find other options, you will find a way to work around it, right? Because that's what it means to be a creative, is to just find a way to work within your constraints. The TikToker Elise Myers uh, has a really amazing video on TikTok where... She gets asked, like, oh, how do you, like, deal with your anxiety? And Elise is like, I just do things scared. <laughs> and I've never felt so seen. So a uh, part of um, what you do in general involves doing background research, looking into people's presences online and in the community, and just figuring out who am I talking to, what do they do, and what uh, cool thing can this person and I make together? What steps do you take to do background research on someone you want to talk to or interview or collaborate with? And what are your red flags and what are your green flags when doing that? So the first thing I do is I look at the we're going to be we're talking about podcasts here. So I'm going to be specifically talking about podcasters who you want to reach out to or people involved in podcasting. I find their podcast website if they have a podcast. If they're a voice actor, I find their voice acting website. If the creator has their personal website, I find a personal website, right? I find their social media. So the one that they use the most generally is usually Twitter in podcasting, especially in fiction podcasting. So I look I look up all these things. These are like the basics. Websites of interest, so personal websites and podcast website, uh, and then their social media. Those are the first steps. I read their bio on their socials, but also I read their socials. I go back a few a few tweets, right, or a few posts. Um, and often I will also do a search on Twitter. Uh, depending on the topic that I want to cover with this person, I will use a search on Twitter where I just, I put in their, their username and then I put in keywords related to the subject and I see if they've said anything about that subject previously. If I'm looking for a collaborator, I, I will look for that person if they have expressed interest in collaborating with other people. It doesn't mean that if they haven't expressed that, I won't reach out. It just means that I will reach out 
differently. I might, I will take like a little bit of a more casual tone, right? Because they've already said that this is something that they're open to talking about. But if they haven't said that before, uh, my tone will be a little bit more formal when I'm approaching them. When I, when they haven't expressed that online, I will always use an email. When they have expressed that online, I will sometimes send it as a DM first. Red flags. The biggest red flag of all is if I find something on their socials that is oppressive or stereotype, stereotypical or um, prejudiced that they haven't been apologized for. That's, that's not just a red flag. That's a, I'm walking away now. <laughs> Goodbye. So red flags are if the person has a lot of unfinished projects that they've ghosted um, or that they've simply dropped without explanation. If the person had been a collaborator on several projects, not just one, but several, and then suddenly didn't weren't collaborating with those projects, all of them, but all of the projects continued with the other people, that's a red flag to me, unless it's been explained publicly. And then so green flags, it's, uh, that's always the funnest thing, right? Green flags are, of course, the opposite of red flags. So if they have a lot of successful collaborative projects, or if they have a lot of personal projects that have been completed or are ongoing, but are like are ongoing, they're still being produced, right? Also, green flags, they talk a lot online with other creators. Um, if they are having discussions publicly about the craft with other creators, that's a green flag. Green flag, they talk about other people's podcasts. I don't want to say that not doing those things is a red flag. The reason why I don't have those in red flags is because some people have anxiety. Some people work multiple jobs to be able to afford rent, and they don't have time right? Some people have kids. Like, it's not a red flag if someone doesn't do those things. But if they do do them, it's a green flag. I know that a big anxiety for some people is like talking to other people, just jumping into a conversation or talking about other shows that they love that they haven't really connected with those creators yet. But being excited about being in the community and other people's projects can only help you in the long run because one, it shows that you're not just in it to promote your stuff. And number two, it shows that you're, you know, integrated into the community and that you're actively looking to learn more just by listening to what else is out there. So speaking of being a presence, you are someone who I think has a really good grasp of how to be normal with a capital N on Twitter. What are your top three Twitter golden rules? So what's interesting is that my golden rules have changed since my uh, platform has grown, which is normal because it should. For someone who is just starting out on Twitter, my number one golden rule is to log off Twitter. What I mean by that is remember to log off, right? Um, Twitter is a cesspit. And even if you're only following like show accounts, you're still going to get stuff in your feed that is vicariously traumatic because people are going to talk about the issues that impact them and they're going to talk about big issues and it's going to be hard. So remember to log off. The fiction podcast communities, plural, because that's the reality. They're communities. It's a group of people and people, people have drama because they can't not. Uh, log off. Don't interact. You can't do good if you're burnt out. You can't empower people if you're burnt out. And you can't help people who are trying to grow if you are burnt out. The way that you can enact that golden rule is by setting a schedule for yourself as to when you are logging onto Twitter to do stuff for your podcast or whatever. 
have a schedule, stick to the schedule. I have ADHD. I know that that's freaking hilarious for me to say. My schedule is very flexible, (laughs) very mutable, let us say. Um, But I do just, I have like a little alarm on my phone that is like, if you haven't logged off Twitter today, log off. (laughs) But I think it's important to say that like, it can be done. No matter the kind of brain that you have, you can have a as healthy as we possibly can these days, relationship with social media, even if social media is your job. Absolutely. Absolutely. So the other two golden rules um, are, two, you're a person and you're a person who has a personal life. Keep something for yourself. Some people get very, very personal on Twitter and that's okay for them, but it can also be really problematic for their audience because some audiences get really uncomfortable with that kind of stuff. And not just for your audience, but for you, it is important to keep something for yourself that is not something that you share on Twitter. And it can be anything. It can be a hobby that you have. It can be talking about your significant others or your love life. It can be talking about your family. It can be anything, right? It could be, I am not going to talk about the fact that I like X media. It can be anything. Keep something for yourself that you don't talk about on Twitter because that will help you distance yourself from from the cesspit and it will help you be more normal. <laughs> and then number three golden rule is be kind. Twitter is a terrible medium for having conversations because all the tweets are 280 characters long. What can you say in 280 characters that is perfectly clear all of the time? One of the biggest problems on Twitter is people reading a tweet and then being like, this does not cater to my specific experience. (sighs) It's that tweet where it's like, I like pancakes. And someone replies, oh, so you hate waffles. And it's like, that's literally a different sentence. So remember to be kind because that will help you read things in good faith, which is absolutely mandatory for having a conversation or reading something that someone posts in a format that only allows them to express thoughts 280 characters at a time. And trust me, you will be a lot happier. <laughs> assume the best. You will have so much more energy if you just assume the best. Uh, but if, but the, the, the corollary to this golden rule is that the block button is your friend. Mute button. And the mute button is also your friend. If you don't want to block someone and you just want to, you're just like, you talk too much. I can't. I can't. I don't, I don't hate you. I just can't anymore. Use the mute button. It's fine. Nobody's going to know. How would they know? Um, (laughs) It's a beautiful thing. It saves so many professional relationships, that button. It does. And if somebody gets up in your face about something, if somebody is like really, really rude or oppressive and you just really, you dislike them, you can use the block button. It is your friend. It is not going to ruin your career. Anyone who complains about being blocked by somebody else on Twitter is usually pointed at and laughed at. So those are my golden rules for don't let Twitter eat your brain. Another day is here and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. 
I will forever stand by Ellie's Twitter golden rules, and when it comes to audio drama Twitter, there are some basic unspoken ones you do well to follow. Number one, don't just tag people in a list recommendation post. All that does is clog a show's mentions and doesn't tell anyone why you're recommending the show. Remember, humans are more likely to do something if it's easy. No one is going to go to each show that you tagged, look at what they're selling, and decide for themselves. You're better off recommending a few shows under a theme or topic, or even better, one show with a personalized testimonial as to why it's so great. The creators will thank you for it. Number two, when DMing a show, try to find the creator's account first and reach out to them there. This can be more of a personal preference, but more often than not, creators like to keep conversations with each other between the accounts of two human beings, not a podcast. Number three, do not piggyback off someone's specific request for reviews, donations, etc. If somebody tweets, a free way to support our show is to leave a review. Do not quote retweet it to ask for reviews of your own show. If somebody is promoting their crowdfund, definitely do not reply that you're crowdfunding as well. If it doesn't apply to you, make your own damn tweet. Number four, if someone asks for recommendations, give a couple shows before plugging your own. Everyone's first instinct when they see somebody asking for show recommendations is to beg them to listen to yours. It's completely understandable. You worked hard on it. But it's also seen as an icky faux pas to just plug your own stuff. So if you want to do that, list a couple shows first with personalized testimonials to show you're not just a self-serving jerk. That being said, Twitter isn't the only place online for audio fiction. Tumblr is rapidly making its way back into people's social media rotation, and it's actually considered the birthplace of audio drama fandom. A good rule of thumb is that audio fiction creators are on Twitter, while the fans are on Tumblr. Take advantage of features like an ask box, longer and more varied posts, and dedicated tag systems to connect with fans and maybe share some bonus content. Now, when it comes to connecting with people I want to talk to, especially those whose work I really love and might be a little starstruck by, I have one secret weapon that everyone is always shocked actually works. I reach out, say hello, and thank them for making the thing. Seriously. Dead seriously, it works. All of my most treasured friendships and collaborations in this industry have come from me being a fan of someone's work, getting on their radar via a tweet or just DMing them about it, and starting up a conversation. Everybody loves to hear about why someone loves their work. It's their baby. By being brave and assuming the best, you'll have the chance to get to talk to people you assumed were totally out of your league. Don't believe me? I've got an example coming right up. This guest also tackles something I've had to make my own way in as I've gotten more opportunities in the industry. What do you do when the person whose work you grew up adoring and maybe were even in the fandom for suddenly becomes a colleague you have to have a normal professional relationship to. It's a paradigm shift that requires another one on your end, and it's something I had the pleasure of talking to Gabrielle Urbina about. I grew up listening to Wolf 359 in middle and high school, and it's been a huge influence on my voice and technique as a writer today. So when we both ended up working on the same show together, I did two things. First, I deleted a lot of works on my AO3. And second, I started taking the guy down off a pedestal, which turns out he's had to do as well. Um, my name is Gabriel Urbina, and I'm a 
writer and a director and a producer, and when somebody really, really, really twists my arm, I have been known to briefly act in one or two things. But I created Wolf 359, and I co-created Time Bombs and Zero Hours and Unseen, and I've gotten to write in all manner of shows. At some point, I will count the number of shows that I've gotten to write in, and it will be a alarmingly vast number, and whenever someone is actually brave enough to hire me, I also teach classes about audio fiction writing uh, and audio fiction storytelling. So yeah, a little bit of everything. Wolf 359 started out at what I like to kind of call phase two of the revival of audio drama. And this was back when the industry itself was a lot smaller, a lot more insular. Uh, There were less fish in the sea. So how did you connect and collaborate with other creators in that space? And then how do you do things differently now? (laughs) Uh, Yes, I mean... How do, I, how do we do things differently now? It largely comes back to, well, now there is a space. It, like you very astutely point out, yeah, we were kind of... It's interesting to call it phase two. I think that for a lot of us in that era, we kind of think of ourselves as the children of Night Vale. Um, kind of a lot of people that maybe grew up listening to audio fiction and liking audio fiction but kind of having this keen awareness of, well, that's a thing that is now done and dusted and was around in the 60s, but not anymore, baby. And then kind of when Night Vale sort of rang that gong by kind of making like the first two or three years of content and really finding an audience, there was, I think, a real sense of, oh, that's that's possible. We can we can do that. That's that that can be done today. Let's do it. Let's do it right now. Because so many of you came from backgrounds where you studied TV and filmmaking and writing for all of that stuff, and you just realized, oh, hey, I don't have to pitch this. I can just do it. Well, yes. And I think that like a lot of us had common experiences of kind of we grew up wanting to work in film and television. We went to school and studied film and television. We graduated with our degrees in film and television. We moved to places where we knew that film and television was happening. And then we went, can we work in film and television? The film and television went Absolutely not. Please get out of my building. And yeah, and I began Wolf 359 when I had, I just lost the sort of internship that I got right after college, which kept me very tangentially connected to the film and television world. And at the time was working at a truly, truly, truly amoral um, advertising agency doing ad copy for them. So things were at a low ebb. Um, And all of a sudden, there was kind of this thought of, oh, wait a minute, you could do audio fiction. And okay, it's not necessarily cheap, but it is definitely cheaper than doing film or television or theater, which is what so many of kind of both my friends and my peers were banging our heads against and just kind of getting absolutely nowhere. Um, And to kind of come back to the original question, in terms of finding collaborators and in terms of finding kind of other people, for a lot of that first year, it was a lot of a sense of, I'm bringing people from the outside into audio fiction. Um, But really, for that first year, we were kind of making the show in this isolated bubble. Um, You know, there was kind of the sense of, 
Well, there's Night Vale, but they're too busy being successful and smoking cigars of awesomeness in order to respond to us. Um, and it was kind of a, finally around the second year that uh, I think that with the advent of the Bright Sessions, it was really when we started to connect with first with Lauren and the people that were making the Bright Sessions, and then with kind of the folks that were making Ars Paradoxica, uh, and then the folks that were making Wooden Overcoats, the folks that were making the Black Tapes. There was kind of this like very slow expansion of we, of us kind of bumping into each other on Twitter and Tumblr as people kind of kept tagging us in the same posts. Uh, and that kind of started like the first proper sense of, oh, we now have peers. We now have kind of people who we can connect to and people that we can talk to about audio fiction and about Stephen Sondheim, but mostly about audio fiction. It's so crazy hearing that from your perspective, um, because as I've talked about in like other interviews, I got my start being in fandoms for audio dramas. Like the fir- I think uh, Marissa told you the first thing I ever sound designed was a fan-made trailer for the first couple seasons of Wolf 359. Like I set it to a Halsey song and I put all of that together. It was it was very high school. <laughs> No, but I remember um, getting into the show right before it, for lack of a better term, exploded in the audio drama fandom collective where we're all passing around the same four show recommendations. Right, and the same $20 bill on Patreon, yeah. Yep, yep. You've talked about all of the influences that you had as a creator. What was it like to go from being a fan of things that other people made to a creator whose show had not just a fandom, but I would argue one of the biggest ones in audio drama. (laughs) Um, It's very strange and very surreal. And also, it's very strange and very wild, but enormously elating and really, really, really a wonderful testament to not just the work that I did, but I think especially like so much of the work that the actors did on the show and so much of the work that Sarah Shackett and the other writers on the show did, so much of the work that Alan Brody, our composer, did. It is funny, but like even today, like we still, I sometimes still like respond to emails and then get the email back that kind of goes, oh my lord, I never in my life, number one, expected a reply at all, and number two, expected that you would be able to and willing to help with this, you know, project or this notion or this whatever that I emailed you about. I imagine that the shift to being someone who was seen as sort of a figurehead of a piece of art was pretty jarring. I remember at one point um, you had the Wolf 359 not for creator tag on Tumblr because you guys were just like, hey, we know that you like to critique the show or do analysis or just make content that you don't want on our radar. So we will give you that space to be fans. So what's one of the biggest lessons that you learned from just being a person whose thing has a fandom and sort of having a responsibility in terms of behavior. I think that one of the things that I kind of learned in the making of Wolf 359 that kind of came as an interesting surprise is how much you find yourself in the center of kind of fan discourse and how sometimes it is not one single discourse, though, how sometimes you're kind of in the middle of, like, five separate conversations that are all happening and none of them are talking to each other. It's like that scene from Community where, like, he brings in the pizza and everything's on fire and, like, what do I have to do with this? Right, 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 exactly. Um, And, yeah, and sometimes, you know, people would kind of at a certain point be like, hey, are you keeping track of, you know, like, 
the garbage fire that's happening on the tag on Reddit, and we'd be like, people are talking about it on Reddit? What? Is, <laughs> wait, 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 when did that happen? Oh, God. But no, but, you know, like, while overwhelmingly Wolf 59 had, like, a very positive reception amongst most people that listened to it, absolutely, there were times when we messed up, and there were times when we kind of, you know, stepped out of line, and there were also times when things that I would stand by did garner a negative reception. And what was fascinating about being in those moments is that sometimes you would kind of be getting feedback from these five separate centers of conversation, and you would kind of be going, okay, everyone agrees that that was not the right thing. Everyone disagrees about why it was not the right thing and about how the show needs to change in order to fix that interesting. And so I think that just kind of like the biggest lesson that I learned is that there is a certain amount of the discourse and the conversation is great for learning. It's great for kind of expanding your thoughts about your own show. It's great for getting new perspectives on it. But at the end of the day, the response that matters the most is in the show itself and how kind of that changes and also how your work evolves as an artist. How are we going to fix that? We're going to do better moving forward. We're going to do better in the work that we do in the future. We're going to carry this critique with us. And kind of setting up those boundaries, kind of that thing where it's like, you can always talk to me. The response is more likely to come in the work itself rather than kind of any like direct discourse that I have with you. I think that that has kind of been an important lesson that I'm still traipsing my way through. But yeah, I think that it's sort of something in all of that. It's kind of like managing how you're able to allow yourself to kind of consume as much feedback as possible while still kind of managing the expectations of where and how you're going to respond to that and where and how you're going to make yourself available to those things. So have you gotten to work with creators whose work you admired outside of audio drama? And if so, how did you change your relationship to them when you went from I'm a fan of your thing to we are working on a project together? I mean, I think that like the f the first definite case where that happened is on the special episode of Wolf 359 that we did to kick off our fourth season, sort of the like flashback episode to Loveless's past. But for that episode, we actually got to work with Mary-Kate Wiles, who had been in The Lisa Bennett Diaries and had been in this amazing short film called Spore and had done a lot of other things that we had kind of seen before we started creating things online. It was one of those things where it was like, this is one of these like big, important online creators and online performers. And when we were doing a Change of Mind, that special episode, there was that question of, oh, we need to cast someone as Eris. We need to cast someone as kind of the villain question mark of the piece. And we were kind of listing a couple of people that we thought might be good for the role. And then the thought kind of came up as, well, why don't we ask Mary-Kate if she might be interested? And I was like, because she's obviously not. Oh my God, why would we waste our time? And Zach and Sarah kind of went like, no, come on, like ask. The worst thing that'll happen is that we'll lose, like, five minutes. And we did, and lo and behold, she was kind of like, yeah, I mean, you know, if we're able to, like, come to a agreement about rates and, like, you know, and all this, that, and the other, that was one where it was very much kind of a, like, oh, my lord, okay, we are now working with this person, I now have to direct this person. Like, you know, it is one of these things where, like, you end up, I feel like sometimes it can end up 
feeling like you're keeping those people at a distance because you're so trying to not project those vibes of like, oh my God, I'm a huge fan, please be my friend, that sometimes those people can kind of end up feeling a little bit like, well, I guess he's not interested in knowing me as a person. Well, I will now like, you know, just kind of like be very professional with them and step back. Uh, and when you realize that's happened, you can kind of go like, no, wait, hang on, come back. I still need to ask you all the like fandom questions that I have. It's disorbiting a little bit. And it is sort of something where I think that like ultimately you kind of have to manage a little bit of just kind of that like fandom impulse. But I mean, I think it's so wonderful that this is a community that let us put our art out there and build these steps in a way to get to these experiences because you talked about, you know, being shut out of the film and TV industry because they're like, we're so full. We, we do not have room. Please get out. Do you happen to have half a million dollars to make a film on your own? No. Please get off our property. Yeah. This is a platform in a way, and it's an unconventional one, but it does provide really cool experiences and opportunities that the rest of the, you know, entertainment industry doesn't present. Yeah, absolutely. And it isn't something that is a demo for a thing that you will make in the future. It isn't a sort of sketch of something. It's something that you listen to it and you're like, you made a finished product. You told a story. You made a thing. And I think that for young artists, I think that it is so important to, number one, be making things and be iterating on things. And number two, to be making lots of things. Um, So having something where it can be accessible to not just be writing things, but to actually be making them. Um, I think it's so important and so useful. And as a writer, you need feedback. As any creator, you need feedback. And the only way that you can kind of get that from people who, you know, aren't your best friends or people who are close to you who will, you know, want to lighten the load of critique a little bit is by just putting it out there and letting people who have never met you before give their honest opinions on it. And that can be tough at times, but it is the only thing that will result in the kind of growth that gets you to those places. And I think that it can be especially tough if you're kind of approaching it with this idea of like, this is my one baby. I was put on this earth to make this one thing. This is my purpose in life. And then when someone is like, here's a valid but harsh criticism of your singular baby that is the one thing that you will ever make, it can kind of be like, ah, and now 40% of me is dead. Goodbye. Uh, whereas if you're kind of approaching it as, this is the thing that I'm making this year, this is one step on this very long journey that I'm hoping to take that will involve many, 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 many things. In many ways, that learning and that sort of like outside perspective is the most valuable thing because it is going to, again, as we were saying earlier, make you better and make you more prepared for taking that next step the right way. You know, Zach and I made the joke all the time that Wolf 359 was our grad school um, because neither of us ended up going to grad school, at least not yet. Um, but it was a thing. We did it right after we graduated from college. I was 23. He was 24 when the show started. And then we spent kind of roughly four years getting an education that was effectively an MFA's worth of writing materials, a director program's worth of directing, and an actor's program worth of acting. Plus, once we actually started running the thing as a business, a kind of like mini crash course in, okay, how do you write a business? How are you tax compliant with New York State? Yeah, no, that we, we got that crash course. We got that education. Um, and in many ways, it was a better grad school, I think, than anything that we could have done immediately after college.
A piece of advice I don't see given enough is to network outside the fiction sphere. My main source of income right now is working with a company that makes nonfiction podcasts, and some of my favorite people to talk shop and collaborate with work primarily outside of the audio drama bubble. Fiction podcasting is a growing industry, but don't cast aside the nonfiction sphere or underestimate crossover appeal. At the end of the day, we're all storytellers trying to make the best sounding thing we can, and there are so many ways we can learn from and support each other across genre lines. Finally, Remember what I said about social media being a curated collection of everybody's high points? Take this as an opportunity to put your best foot forward. Remember that there are people in your life who care about your ups, downs, and mundanities, but when it comes to what is essentially 4D marketing, people want the highlight reel. Don't feel bad about sharing it. For today's exercise, this is one I do every time I need to make one for a new show. Do a press kit deep dive. Every show should have a press kit available on their website that has things like their description and logline, release schedule, links to cover and title art, contact info, and more. Go through as many shows as you can handle and look to see how easy it is to find their press kit and what some of the most common items are. Ask yourself if you think anything is missing. Get started with that, and I'll see you next week. If you like what you heard, sound off! Drop me a line at minimarconis.com or at newtshot, that's N-E-W-T-S-C-H-O-T-T, on Twitter. You can also leave us a rating and review on iTunes, Podchaser, or Spotify. Thanks for listening. The Fable and Folly Network, where fiction producers flourish.